Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 265, Live Still to Die. So last time, John Dudley joined his father in the taking the fall for their master's category in whatever heavenly location they ended up in, and we reflected that Jane would have been able to hear the roar of the crowd as the axe fell. And we also heard she would have had no sympathy for a man she saw as the agent of her family's destruction and a traitor to the true faith. Let's turn now to Jane's life, which we spoke of when the tower had become a prison rather than a palace. Maybe the clamour of Mary's triumphant entry into London disturbed Jane from a critical task she was carrying out. Maybe she rushed from her table to a window to look out or asked her jailer what the noise was all about. If so... The task our 16-year-old was engaged in was writing a letter to her conqueror explaining her actions. We do not have that letter, which is of course a shame, but we do have reports of what was in the letter from Italian sources, which means it could be fluff, but proper historians like Nicola Tallis and Eric Ives have pierced together for us what it might reliably have contained. Essentially, Jane's message was that she was not aware of what was happening until the very last minute. She did not ask for it, and she was just a victim of Northumberland's machinations. The first she felt something was in the air was when she'd visited the Dudleys and her new husband on the 19th of June and had been told by the Duchess of Northumberland she must stay and that she'd been made heir to the throne. Rather remarkably, it must be said, Jane discounted the reason given that Edward VI wanted to make her queen. So, next time someone asks you to stay, you might now want to include the possibility Are you trying to make me Queen of England? You might politely inquire. No, Jane assumed it was a ruse by the Duchess trying to get her to sleep with her husband. Quite an elaborate ruse. Anyway, Jane went on to relate the events of the summer to Mary and concluded that, thus in truth, 
I was deceived by the Duke and ill-treated by my husband and his mother. She asks Mary for pardon in a rather more dignified manner than her elders. I trust in God that as now I know and confess my want of prudence, for which I deserve heavy punishment, except for the very great mercy of your majesty, I can on many grounds conceive hope of your infinite clemency. I am charged more guilty than I deserve. Jane very clearly thought she had a good chance of survival, and she would have had some other examples in front of her, of noble rebels such as Edward Courtney, for example, who had been locked away in the tower for 16 years. And although children grow up fast in Tudor days, at 16 I wonder if she expected the consequences of her actions to be those of a child rather than an adult. The point is that Jane would have still had that most dangerous of possessions, hope. Her worries would have been as much about how she would live, how much liberty, how much contact that she would have had, as to whether she'd live or die. Now, to give her credit, Mary fully intended that she be right, and Mary was under considerable pressure to send both Jane and Guildford to the gallows without delay. She was under pressure from the imperial ambassadors, representatives of the empire that for so long she had looked to as her greatest friends. Simon Renard reported back to his master after a particularly unsatisfactory discussion. As to Jane of Suffolk, who they tried to make queen, she could not be induced to consent that she should die. Her conscience would not permit her to have her put to death. Renard's letter also makes it clear that Mary had received Jane's letter, she had read it, and furthermore, that she'd believed it. In August then, Jane was moved out from the royal apartments to the house of a gentleman jailer that delightfully named Nathaniel Partridge. Jane was still a royal cousin, so she had three gentlewomen to look after, and although not grand, her life would have been comfortable. Guildford and his brother were probably significantly less comfortable in the Beecham Tower where they stayed, but their nobility would have also protected them from the worst of things. It seems that Jane probably ate in her own rooms most evenings, because on the 29th of August, when Nathaniel brought a guest home called Roland Lee, he was surprised to find Jane having supper in the downstairs room, and they were in something of a panic being in the presence of a royal person. Caps were snatched hastily off heads, and, if they were anything like me, a stream of mindless babble issued from lips for later reanalysis and shame. Jane, though, seems to have been very happy to have had the company. She welcomed them in. She drank the visitors' health and everyone began to be at ease and have a chat. It's a fascinating, a very rare glimpse of the private Jane, recorded because Roland wrote his experiences down. And they obviously spoke quite openly. So Jane sang Mary's praises. The Queen's Majesty is a merciful princess. I beseech God she may long continue and send his bountiful grace upon her. Jane asked about whether the mass was back in London and then talk moved to the execution of Northumberland. Jane's words revealed complete contempt for the man she held responsible for all the evils that had befallen her family. Of his conversion, neither she nor the visitors had any doubt and they agreed with Jane's verdict. But life was sweet, it appears. So he might have lived, he cared not how, for he that would have lived in chains to have had life belike would leave no other means attempted. And Jane's religious convictions, which define the manner of the rest of her life and define her death, come to the fore as well. But God be merciful to us, for he says, Whoso denies him before men, he will not know him in his father's kingdom. The meal broke up with thanks all round, 
and you get that strong impression of a brief bit of normality and human contact in Jane's life and a chance to let off a bit of steam. For a time then, life carried on for Jane within the close confines of the Partridge's house. It would have been a bit dull and she was not allowed to walk around the precinct so there was no opportunity for much exercise but at least the immediate sense of danger must have receded just a bit. Even for podcasters, it's impossible to be in a permanent state of panic. August turned to September, September to October, and then one day disturbing news did come to Jane. She was to be put on trial for treason. Pressure had continued on Mary to have Jane executed. There's no indication that Mary felt so inclined, and it's pretty reasonable to assume, as most do, that Mary always intended to use her pardon after the treason trial. But that would have made the occasion no more comfortable for Jane. She wouldn't have known that. Jane was to be tried not at Westminster Hall, but at the Guildhall in London, and she was to be tried alongside Cranmer, Guildford and his brothers. So why the Guildhall? Because they were all commoners. So the idea of a private boat ride to be judged by the lords of the land at Westminster Hall, that was just too good for them. So, the small group gathered in the precincts of the tower, ready to walk to the Guildhall. And this was the first time Jane would have seen Guildford since their imprisonment. It's doubtful they had any time for any meaningfuls, because the procession was quickly assembled, with guards surrounding each member of it. Axe heads turned away from them to indicate they were still innocent, just for the moment. Offset the procession, led by Thomas Cranmer, and as they walked out into the streets, Jane carried with her the protection that had always suited her best. So, at her girdle swung a book bound in black, matching her black gown, while in her hand was another book open. You would have to bet it was a Bible. Maybe that helped her cut out the jeering crowds that surrounded the group as they walked through the London streets. At the trial itself, matters were held up by Cranmer trying to plead not guilty, but in the end, they all pleaded guilty. The men were sentenced to be drawn, hanged and quartered, Jane was given a choice from a smorgasbord of attractive options to be selected by the Queen. She could be burned to death, or she could be beheaded. As the sentence was read out, all eyes were on Jane expecting some reaction, but she didn't give them the satisfaction. Back to the tower they walked, axe heads now turned towards them. And so life carried on until the next dramatic event. Around the 17th of December, Jane was allowed to walk in the Queen's garden, it's entirely possible she would have met Guildford there, since they could also walk there with specific permission. We do not even know if they did or didn't, let alone what they might have said if they had met, which leaves the field open for novelists and filmmakers, of course. Jane spent the vast majority of her time reading the Bible and her sacred texts, and she also wrote some things that we've still got. One was a letter to her old chaplain at Bradgate Hall, one Thomas Harding. At some point, she learned to her horror that Harding had abandoned his Protestant beliefs. Jane's letter is a model of clarity on her views of him, who had seemed once to be the lively member of Christ, but now the deformed imp of the devil, sometime the beautiful temple of God, but now the stinking and filthy kennel of Satan. And there's more. She was absolutely resentless and unforgiving in her opinion of him. Why dost thou now show thyself to be weak, when indeed thou oughtest to be most strong? O wretched and unhappy man, what art thou but dust and ashes? The letters reveal the strength of Jane's religious feeling. They also show something of that steel in her character, which she had begun to show as a queen. Of course, 
It could all now be bravado and would crumble in the face of death should he come knocking. The letters don't only show religious feeling, they show Jane's learning and intelligence as well. The letters are full of references and quotes of the Bible, a document Jane knew inside out, front to back. But they also showed her humanist learning and her command of the required six-stage Renaissance accusation. As John Fox noted, Jane had the makings of a scholar capable of matching any of the university men. It's also quite possible that this letter and some later letters she writes were designed for circulation to be read by other people. So those of you members who listened to the Thomas More episodes might remember that Thomas More wrote letters to his daughter Meg that were designed to be circulated by her so that he could control his reputation. He could help form the public view of how he wanted to be remembered. And it's quite possible that Jane was doing the same thing here. A rather more personal document was a prayer she wrote in her prayer book. I put it on the website. It's quite a thing. She essentially reconciles the events of her life with her faith as a time of testing. In her heart, it's little doubt that she believed she'd been chosen as one of the elect and therefore whatever she faced as a result of her imprisonment, pardon, imprisonment, death, her eternal destiny was sure. So through her Christmas season we go. Jane had seen nor hide nor hair of her family so there were no visiting rights if you're a convicted traitor in the Tower, so we've no idea how far Jane was able to celebrate, but let's hope that Nathaniel found a brace of partridge from somewhere to help her mark the occasion. But sometime in January, news would probably have made it through the walls, but all was not quite well. By mid-January, Jane would have started to see for herself the Tower stirred like an ant's nest, because two noblemen, Peter Carew and Thomas Wyatt, had raised the standard of rebellion against Mary, calling on all loyal Englishmen to throw out this queen who proposed to marry the King of Spain. All of which would have no doubt attracted Jane's attention, but not necessarily alarmed her. None of the rebels were mentioning her name as a rival queen, for example. But then at some point, maybe around the end of January, she'd have heard worse news. Her own father, Henry Grey, had joined the rebellion. He was now in the Midlands raising troops to join Thomas White in the South. Now Jane would surely have been assailed by a multitude of worries. What would happen to her father? What would happen to her? On the 3rd of February, when Wyatt's army washed up against the gates of Southwark, Jane may well have been able to see or hear the rebels from behind the tower's mighty walls. But London would not let Wyatt in, so he did a smart about turn, marched out to the west, and then on the 6th of February could be seen approaching London from the west. Among Queen Mary's councillors, all was panic. Stephen Gardner, Wiley Winchester, joined the voices of Renard and the imperial representatives that Jane must die. Never mind, she didn't seem to be connected in any way. Her father was part of it. She could become a focus for the rebellion at any time. She must be killed now. Although we can't be sure of the timetable, it is probable that on the evening of the 6th of February 1554, Mary finally gave way and signed the order to execute Jane and Guildford. On the 7th of February, Wyatt arrived at the western gates of London to find them held against him, just as firmly as those at Southwark, and his rebellion disintegrated around him. Wyatt was seized and taken to the Tower of London. That same evening, Jane Grey received a visit, possibly from Nathaniel, or maybe from Sir John Bridges, the lieutenant of the Tower. Whoever it was, they told Jane that she was to be executed the following day. Who knows what she felt? She might 
have felt a tiny bit peeved with Dad, I would have thought. But, you know, Jane was made of finer stuff than I. And either way, she gave away nothing. She held firm, remained calm as she heard the news. The following day, the 8th of February, a visitor arrived to see Jane. It was one of the Queen's chaplains, Dr John Feckenham. Feckenham came with a reputation of argument and fierce defence of the Catholic rite. He had accepted Henry's royal supremacy, but the changes in the sacraments he could not live with. Nonetheless, he was admired for his charity and the quality of his intellect, and he managed to stay out of prison until 1549, when he turned up in the Tower. He'd been arrested on that occasion by Lord Grey of Wilton, the man who had rather savagely repressed the Oxfordshire camps, which raises the interesting possibility he'd taken an active part in the time of commotions. Feckenham had stayed in the Tower, but so great was his reputation that he was brought out for some discussions and debates about the religious changes, notably to William Cecil's get-together at his house on Cannon Row. It's an interesting demonstration that while we tend to focus on the violence and discord of the religious changes, from day to day, many were simply trying to find and understand, in good faith, the right way. Anyway, on Mary's return, Feckenham was triumphantly released from the Tower. And now he was going back there on an errand to help save the soul of Lady Jane. He may have felt that with his experience in debate, with the advantage of his years, and with a vulnerable young person facing death, he would be able to convert Jane to the path of righteousness again. Jane was less than encouraging, it has to be said. Here is a strong intellect, educated by some of the top minds of the Reformation, and she had shown that she could hold her own already. You are welcome, sir, if your coming is to give me a Christian exhortation. But she was pretty firm that while she appreciated the gesture of him coming, she really didn't need any help, thank you very much. There is no cause why either you or others which bear me goodwill should lament or be grieved with this my case, being a thing so profitable for my soul's health. It's difficult to deal with, but maybe Jane Grey was one of those who genuinely welcomed the release from this world to go on to a better. Nonetheless, Feckenham explained the problem. He needed to free her from the superstition in which she had grown up. And Jane tried to politely deflect his mission by saying there wasn't enough time for such a serious discussion. So sorry, best to just have done, or words to that effect. But Feckenham was a good man, and he managed to get three days reprieve for her so they could have that time to debate. And Lord knows, most people would have been happy for the extra life. But would they? You know, who knows? Jane was firm in her faith, and maybe the delays just distracted her from the preparation she needed to make within herself, because she wasn't pleased. Because, during his absence, she'd taken leave of all earthly matters, so she did not even think of the fear of death. Nonetheless, Feckenham pressed on, asking her about faith and trying to press on her an understanding that she was in error. Each time, Jane had an answer, confident in her knowledge and in her conviction. Eventually, Feckenham made great play of the difficult path the evangelicals in England had taken towards the full description of their faith, which was a common approach, it has to be said. But Jane's answer was to stress the great freedom English Protestants believed they had won. I ground my faith on God's word and not the church. At this, Feckenham admitted defeat, and with regret he said that he was sorry for her, for I'm sure we two shall never meet. Because, of course, Jane would presumably never make it to heaven where Feckenham was off to. But Jane yielded not an inch even at this. 
we shall never meet, unless God turn your heart, for I am sure you are in an evil case. Okay, fair enough. But Jane and Feckenham were also proof that it was possible to find respect and liking across this widest of barricades. Because Jane added, God has given you his great gift of utterance, if it please him to open the eyes of our heart to his truth. Whether at Jane's request or Feckenham's suggestion, Feckenham promised that he would be with her at the end, by her side. Jane's resolution had held firm, but it faced now another test, this time from her husband Guildford. Guildford, of course, also faced death now, and a message arrived with Jane that, before dying, he wished to embrace and kiss her for the last time, wherefore he begged her to allow him to visit. The relationship between Jane and Guildford is frustratingly hidden from us. The few glimpses we have of Guildford were written by Catholic observers with a relentless and pitiless need to denigrate and undermine the action of Mary's political and religious opponents, so it's difficult to know whether the tales of a petulant Guildford during Jane's nine days, controlled by his mother, trying desperately to be made king and act as though he were king, are true. Guildford, of course, wasn't much older than Jane and his story is every bit as much a tragedy as his wife's. He was probably even more powerless than Jane was. It is just possible that their relationship was just like the one that Trevor Nunn, Helena Bonham Carter and Carrie Elwes conjured up in the film Lady Jane, which, as you know, Wolf and I reviewed last week in the History of Technicolor. It's a bit unlikely, it's got to be said. The little evidence we have is that it was a difficult relationship with their continuous separation after the marriage and one for which Jane wasn't really ready. But look, we can dream, watch the film and weep gently into our beer slash rhubarb and rosemary flavoured G&Ts. What we know is that when Jane received Guildford's request, she said no. Is this the act of the Ice Maiden, refusing to see a young man she despised and felt had deceived her? Or the act of someone who could not simply bear to go through with the laceration of the heart of meeting again a lover who was also to die? There is a good and brief article about the topic on the intertubes, by the way, to which I'll give you a link on the website. Either way, this is what she said to Guildford. If the sight of them might have given comfort to their souls, more gladly would she be contented to see him, but that she finding that their sight would increase the misery in both and bring much more suffering, it was best for now to forego that act. Later, in a brief time, they would see each other in another part and live perpetually joined in an indissoluble bond. So I personally, I am going to go with two young people with little time to get to make a relationship, but bound together by a common experience, and that in this last act, Jane simply could not bear the emotional pain. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In the last few hours remaining to her, Jane sat down to write, and two things have come down to us. The first is a letter to her younger sister Catherine, where she tells her to live well and hold firm to her faith. And once again, Jane's own commitment comes through. I am assured that I shall, for losing of a mortal soul, win an immortal life. It's clear from the letter that by now Jane had heard of her father's capture. On the 10th of February, Henry Grey was brought into the Tower Precinct, apparently suffering and in some pain. It had been discovered, hiding in the hollow bowl of a tree, which is a fitting end, really. 
he would be executed on the 21st of February. Jane wrote in her letter to Catherine that faith shall win you more than you should have gained by the possession of your woeful father's land. That the use of the word woeful referred to her father's misfortune rather than being a criticism came out in the other survival we have from her. She wrote a message to her father in her prayer book. Despite everything that had happened, despite the mess her father's incompetence and general blundering had put her into, there was without doubt a strong bond between them. Tudor children were taught to be obedient and Tudor society was a gerontocracy. It did not worship youth as we do, he said controversially. So both these powerful cultural forces reinforced such a bond. They shared a passionate commitment to religion and for some reason they shared something more. So the message from Jane is written with Tudor formality but the true feeling comes through, or so I think anyway. The Lord comfort your grace and that in his word wherein all creatures only are to be comforted. And though it has pleased God to take away two of your children, yet think not, I most humbly beseech your grace, you have not lost them. But trust that we, by leaving this mortal life, have won an immortal life. And I, for my part, as I have honoured your grace in this life, will pray for you in another life. Your grace's humble daughter, Jane Dudley. By now it seems that Jane had a good relationship too with her master jailer, the grizzled John Bridges. John Bridges was 61 years old and he and his wife had 11 children. Yes, that's 11 children. Back in July, Queen Jane had written to Bridges asking him to support her cause, but Bridges had refused. He was a staunch Catholic and instead he rallied to Mary's side. He shouted defiance at Wyatt's rebels from the walls. He was Mary's man with a capital M. But he was also clearly a man of some sympathy, and his heart had been touched by Jane. He was to prove something also of a soft touch when the Princess Elizabeth was incarcerated in the Tower and was criticised for being too lenient with her. So, when Jane came to him with her prayer book, asking that he take it to her father in the Tower, he agreed that when they went to go to her execution, she should give the book to his brother and he would take it to her father. I really don't want to try too hard to imagine what the gift did to her father when he was given it after her execution. Am I getting too sentimental? Stiff upper lip. Onwards. The morning of the 12th of February dawned when Mr and Mrs Dudley were to die. Normally executions were carried out bright and early but this was February and so it seems everyone had a late start around about 10 o'clock. Guildford was to die first and he was to die on Tower Hill which is outside the walls in front of the Good Burgers of London. We know very little of his death, his words are not recorded. We do know that, like Jane, he refused to convert to Catholicism and can therefore join the list of Protestant martyrs. We also know that Jane probably watched him die from the tower, despite the pleadings of her gentlewomen, and she was supposed to have murmured, Guildford, oh, Guildford. Or maybe that was Guildford, oh, Guildford. Ten years later, an observer would write that the death of such a young, blameless man was marked without any of the heckling normally handed out for a traitor, writing that even those that never before the time of his execution saw him did with lamentable tears bewail his death. Jane was to die on Tower Green, inside the tower away from the masses and therefore very probably in front of a very small crowd. And that time had now finally come. Dressed simply all in black, Out from her room she was brought to gather with a small group inside the tower. Waiting there for her was John Bridges and his brother, her two ladies, Ellen and Elizabeth, 
and John Feckenham was there too, as he had promised. Jane handed the prayer book to Bridges. Bridges had agreed to make sure it reached her father, but had also asked for a message for himself, so that he would keep the book after her father's death. And Jane had written, For as much as you have desired so simple a woman to write in so worthy a book, good master lieutenant, therefore I shall as a friend desire you, and as a Christian require you, to call upon God, to incline your heart to his laws, to quicken you in this way, and not to take the word of truth utterly out of your mouth. Live still to die, that by death you may purchase eternal life. For as the preacher saith, there is a time to be born and a time to die, and the day of death is better than the day of our birth. Yours, as the Lord knoweth, as a friend, Jane Dudley. Now at last the group left the tower, moved towards the scaffold on the cold February morning. As they walked, it seems they may have passed the cart containing the decapitated body of her husband. Ellen and Elizabeth appear to have lost it by this point and were sobbing, but their mistress was not and had not. She had taken refuge once more in the place she had taken refuge so many times before, reading a prayer book open in her hands as she walked. The party climbed up to the scaffold where the executioner was waiting, fresh from the death of her husband. Can I speak my mind? she asked. Yes, madam. Jane turned to the small crowd and she said this. Good people, I am come hither to die, and by a law I am condemned to the same. The fact indeed against the Queen's Highness was unlawful, and the consenting thereunto by me. But touching the procurement and desire thereof by me or on my behalf, I do wash my hands thereof in innocency before the face of God and the face of you good Christian people this day. I pray you all good Christian people to hear me witness that I die a true Christian woman, and that I do not look to be saved by any other mean, but only by the mercy of God, in the merits of the blood of his only Son, Jesus Christ. I confess, when I did know the word of God, I neglected the same, and loved myself and the world. And therefore this plague or punishment is happily and worthily happened unto me for my sins. I thank God of his goodness, that he has given me a time and respite to repent. Now, good people, while I am alive... I pray you assist me with your prayers. You might note the last bit, while I am alive, even to the death Jane was rejecting any kind of Catholic suggestion that prayers for the dead could help speed a soul through purgatory. Now a bit of uncertainty comes into the story. Even at the point of death, the English insist on not doing something socially awkward. So Jane wasn't sure what happened next and if she was allowed to read a psalm. She turned round and asked Dr Feckenham if she could, and so she then knelt and did so. She stood again, turned to Dr Feckenham once more, and extraordinarily, she teased them a bit. The waiting for death hadn't been scary at all, it had just been really boring. Seriously? And then she embraced him. She thanked him for his companionship, saying, Go and may God satisfy every wish of yours. I think it's safe to assume that Feckenham was in floods. Next, gloves and a handkerchief to Mistress Tilney, prayer book to Thomas Bridges and then she turned to her ladies who helped her remove her gown, headdress and collar. The burly executioner now stepped forward, knelt, asked for her forgiveness which she gave most willingly. How are you coping with this everyone? Not much more agony to go, just a bit more. The executioner now told Jane to move forward to the straw and she saw the block clearly for the first time. I pray you dispatch me quickly. 
She knelt down in front of the block, and suddenly she panicked a bit. Will you take it off before I lay me down? What does she mean? Well, she was probably thinking back to Anne Boleyn, who had been executed in French fashion, kneeling head up. Even at such a time, Jane wanted a little control, wanted to know. I think that's the most desperate bit of the whole affair, personally. Will you take it off before I lay me down? Ply me. No, madam, the executioner reassured her. Jane tossed her hair forward to make sure it would not get in the way of the axe when it fell on her neck, tied up her hair with a blindfold over her eyes. The executioner took up the axe, hidden behind the block, and grimly took his position. In the blackness and quiet, Jane reached forward for the block, but she'd misjudged the distance. Her hands met nothing but air. Now again she panicked. What shall I do? Where is it? Just when he thought it could not get any worse, the utter utter hideousness of it all. Young girl, blindfolded, about to be executed in fear and distress, everybody froze. Everyone on the scaffold had lost any sense of self-control. Nobody moved as Jane waved her hands desperately in front of her. It fell to a bystander to help. An extraordinary thing, a bystander to mount the scaffold, come forward, kneel beside Jane, guide her hands to the edge of the block. Now at last, Jane could finish it. She gave her neck to the embrace of the block, Lord, into my hands I commend my spirit. When Jane's blood soaked into the straw, the party fled. Hours later, her headless body lay still on the scaffold. Well, good golly. I have to say the film Lady Jane, which is an out-and-out romance, by the way, does the execution pretty well, except the very last bit, which is something of a betrayal, actually. After such an event... I think we should reflect a little about Jane's story and how it has affected us over the centuries and years. There is a very good historiography, by the way, in both Nicola Tallis's book, The Crown of Blood, and Eric Ives' book, Lady Jane Grey, A Tudor Mystery. Jane's story has been an inspiration for many reasons and for different reasons. In the aftermath of the worst religious programme ever unleashed in England by Queen Mary, Jane Grey was quite simply the Protestant martyr to end all Protestant martyrs, and in John Fox's hands I think she would have approved. She was a relentless and severe critic of the Catholic religion, and she died utterly convinced that by following its rites you separated your eternal soul from any possibility of redemption. But the story was richer than that. It was of innocence betrayed, George Cavendish, the Catholic and excellent biographer of Wolsey, you might remember, wrote of her counsellors, Your creeping and kneeling to me, poor innocent, brought me to weaning with your persuasions. I have to admit the only reason I've reproduced that is that it's spookily we come across the word weaning again, this time meaning agreeing. How spooky is life? Just how spooky is it sometimes? By the end of the 16th century, A new element had been added to the story, the story of a love separated between Jane and Guildford. Through the 17th century, the weak and feeble beautiful woman betrayed Strand becomes stronger with John Hayward's Her excellent beauty adorned with all variety of virtues as a clear sky with stars. In 1729, an opera bore the lines You husbands too who follow lawless pleasures and dare at home neglect your bosom treasures, know that I shall arise to cert the female cause. Jane was now the object of historical fiction as well as historical fact. In 1834, in Paris, a French artist called Paul Delaroche opened an exhibition of his work. 
Delaroche had been labelled with complete disdain by his artistic critics as a hideous and laughable populist, a caricature of a serious artist. His paintings were mocked as romantic, sentimental and melodramatic. They mock his work as the literary critics have mocked and denigrated Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings for its tawdry popularity. The more fooled them, of course. So they must have hated it when Delaroche opened his exhibition and there, among his paintings, was the execution of Lady Jane Grey. It was a sensation. The good people of Paris went potty. Of all this genre of historical painting, so beloved of humble podcasters looking for copyright-free material, Paul Delaroche's creation has got to be the greatest. It is a work of manipulation on a criminal scale. The situation of the execution is moved inside rather than it was outside, so it's dark, it's brooding. There's Jane all in white, in the light, reaching for the block, defenceless, all around are men in position of power. This is youth and innocence betrayed, women abused and betrayed by men. When I thought I'd do some special artwork for this programme, I played with other options, particularly because the story of the Rebel Queen is as much about strength, intelligence, courage, resolution of the women involved, Mary and Jane in particular, as it is about this sentimental story of love, innocence and betrayal. But it is quite impossible. It's such a powerful and well-known image. You can't use anything else. In the hands of the Strickland sisters in the late 19th century, Jane became the standard model for feminine virtues of innocence, modesty, piety, courage and a slight smell of carbolic soap. Well, what do we think, gentle listeners? One of the things that is consistently downplayed in the last couple of years is Jane's fierce and entirely contemporary hatred of Catholics. The kind of pretty standard religious feeling on both sides that we now label as bigotry and fanaticism. We find this difficult to deal with these days, but it was a fundamental part of her nature. Jane Grey was brilliant, frighteningly and precociously intelligent and well-educated, but she was not flexibly minded or tolerant. She's saved from being the kind of mad, incomprehensible figure cut by Joan of Arc, though, by just a few snippets of humanity. The teasing of Feckenham and her friendship with him, despite the religious differences which were so important to her, saves her from mindless bigotry. In the end, she could accept people for who they were, not just for what they represented. The note of love to a father who had comprehensively and consistently failed her. Yeah, there is an undeniably a story there of women betrayed by men, but in this story it's worth noting that the women, the Duchess of Suffolk and Northumberland, were by no means ciphers and were utterly committed to the same path of making Jane Queen whatever her wishes. The youth and innocence betrayed is a stronger trait for me, Jane didn't want this cup of poison and she never sought it. The thing I took away, though, from the story of Edward VI and his legal successor, Queen Jane, is a feeling of regret. What kind of king might Edward have made if he'd lived to maturity with his intelligence and emerging self-belief? Of Jane, Eric Ives compared her to Anne Frank and wrote that both speak for the multitude of brutality's victims who have no voice. And I can kind of see that, but for me... I wonder what kind of queen might Jane have made with her resolution, self-control, courage, fierce intelligence. It's possible that she'd have been a religious persecutor, but to be honest, without Mary's intervention, England was well down the path to Protestantism, and it's probable the point of requirements for such violence had passed. I think she could have been as great a leader as England ever had with her combination of that intelligence, feeling and steel. It's those qualities we should take away from her story, in my humble opinion of her triumph, of her ultimate victory. Because for Jane, death genuinely held no fears. She knew she would meet her redeemer, as sure 
as I can touch my keyboard. Let me leave the last few words to those she wrote of herself. Just to warn you, you might want to reach for a hanky. These are very Jane Grey because they're written in the formal structure of three epigrams. The first was written in Latin, the next was written in Greek, and the third in English. So, the first. If justice is done with my body, my soul will find mercy in God. And the second one. Death will give pain to my body for its sins, but the soul will be justified before God. So far, so much the reinforcement of the strength of her faith. And so to the third. If my faults deserve punishment, my youth at least and my imprudence were worthy of excuse. God and posterity will show me favour. Blimey. See you next week then, folks. Nicola Tallis and prizes. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.